Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. is king. You have to have something to put on cable. You have to have something to put on the phones now. You have to have something to put online that people are going to want to consume and consume loyally and repeatedly and at length. And so the idea is if you can do that and do it in a way where it's financially advantageous to you, that's great. And some of the problems is, you know, are you going to get into the world where Comcast and Verizon can slow down your ability to receive fast streaming stuff from Netflix or Amazon or people that they haven't struck deals with? Are they going to advantage their own? They say, well, that's not in our interest because we want people to like our broadband service and not complain about it and shift to somebody else. But the reality is, is like cable itself, there aren't usually a whole lot of choices that you have. It's usually only one or two that you can choose among. Here with David Falkenflick, media correspondent for NPR News. On everything from TVs to newspapers to OTT boxes, Facebook, Fox News, Apple News, you name it, he's ours for the hour. So do stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments. With more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide. Online at pfgc.com. Joining me from New York is David Falkenflick, beloved media correspondent for NPR News. He hosts the show On Point. Uh, Geraldo Rivera of Fox News once called him a, quote, really weak-kneed, backstabbing, sweaty-palmed reporter, close quote. Uh, but I think that the most uh, shameful thing you've ever done is appear on this humble show for the third time, sir. How are you? Pretty damning. <laughs> pretty, pretty damning. I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Man? I'm great. As you know, I love to wonk out on all things media and entertainment sure. and journalism with you. You cast such a wide net in your beat. I'm going to throw a totally crazy wild card okay. at you I'm today. here for you. Uh, Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele right now, the it man of Hollywood, the guy who made us laugh at Key and Peele. You just thought he was a funny man for the longest time, but then he comes out with Get Out a couple of years ago, and it completely takes over a new genre, and now he's out with us, and this is the top-grossing movie in the country. And today we get news uh, all over the newswires that you can now watch the first episode of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone reboot on... Drum roll, CBS All Access Paywall, which naturally has me wondering about login fatigue. Mr. Falkenflick, how many logins do I need? Netflix, Hulu, Spotify. I mean, I have an NPR One login. HBO Go wants a login from me. Um, you're hearing about this, this fabled Disney separate login when they're going to break out their content from Netflix. What do you think is going on? I think people realize that content costs money. And I think people realize that advertising is fading. It has not vanished. Uh, I think that content makers want control, more of control of their destiny as people cut ties to cable, nothing that you haven't thought about on this show and, and off the show for that matter, uh, and that everybody's fighting to be one of the survivors. It's not really that everybody thinks there can be 264 things that you pay for, although they'd be happy for you to do that. It's that I think they all want to be a survivor. CBS seems to have actually done quietly pretty well with this uh, 
digital access service. You know, the spinoff of The Good Wife seems to have been a good hit for them. Uh, Star Trek seems to have been a good vehicle. Uh, the Twilight Zone is a brilliant uh, choice, both because of the original series uh, and the brilliance with which it was executed, but its endurance as a brand and then naming Jordan Peele and his team to update it. Peele really clearly has a sense and a sensibility uh, for what he wants to accomplish, whether it's in humor or it's in horror and w- how he wants you to think about things uh, through either a narrative vehicle. And The Twilight Zone is a perfect, uh, you know, means of doing just that. And so, you know, I don't know if 10, 15 years from now, CBS uh, All Access, uh, the paywall is going to be a huge thing for them. What I do know is they want to be relevant and a player. They want to make sure that they have younger audiences. Their broadcast audience is quite old. Uh, And this is a way to try to do that. So yeah, there's subscription fatigue. I mean, my God, the number of times that I have to re-sign in to publications for which I already pay and have already created the, the logon and the password and have to do it again, even on you know Chrome and uh, Safari, which are browsers that supposedly save your uh, passwords, it is super frustrating. But what they're all hoping to do is to show up on your huge broad screen TV uh, in terms of the non-print stuff, in terms of the streaming video, uh, and that you will just turn to them as one of your major channels and you will ultimately think of all these guys that you're paying slightly for uh, as different channels the way you used to for, you know, back when cable was only about 50 channels and as opposed to 500. And in a weird way, it's creating outside of cable the a la carte uh, pricing that people have been begging for inside cable for quite some time. The cable industry's argument was always, yeah, but you'll be paying a lot more if you do it this way. And we're finding they may not be wrong about that. How do you feel if you're somebody like a Comcast, a cable town, or one of the cable giants like Cablevision cable out there, where increasingly people are looking at you as, if not a dumb pipe, I understand you have a lot of content, but you're only useful to me as a Wi-Fi provider. If I can just get that, not video, not your, not your landline package, not your quadruple play. I just need you to access, you know, like Naughty by Nature, to paraphrase them, you down with OTT. You know, yeah, you know me. Over the top. I want to get Apple TV or Roku. Just give me the bandwidth and get out of my way. I mean, I think that's a problem for uh, Comcast. Comcast, uh, you know, has been diversifying lately. Uh, I think they have, if I'm not mistaken, a greater stake in Hulu than ever uh, as a result of some of the Disney Fox machinations. They took over Sky Broadcast in Britain, which was uh, sort of the major European presence of the Murdochs on the broadcast and entertainment side. Uh, So they're making content. They control you know, they are this nation's largest provider of, as you said, dumb pipes, but that's an important business. Uh, that makes them a lot of money, and that has eased the uh, pain of fewer people paying for cable. They're also the nation's uh, either the nation's leading or one of the nation's leading uh, cable providers as well. And let's not forget, there's still dozens of millions of American households that still subscribe to cable. You know, it used to be something like 85%. I think it's now south of that by you know, a decent chunk, but, you know, three quarters of the nation still paying for cable satellite TV. That's still a lucrative business, but it's one that's in decline. So uh, Comcast is trying to find a way to have streaming services. Uh, Comcast is, you know, has made significant sports investments to try to find a way to have live uh, and at least for its viewers, indispensable programming that you can't know the outcome of uh, until after it's uh, complete. Uh, 
you know, in some ways, Comcast is this behemoth. It's a giant. It's extremely profitable. And yet it seems to have a weaker hand uh, than some of the folks. I mean, Disney looks to me as though it probably is in a position. It depends on execution, but in a position to survive all this. But one of the things that that our friends, the Murdochs, uh, decided was that uh, Fox wasn't going to be able to be one of those survivors. And Disney was. Uh, so he wanted to sell to a guy who could ultimately be one of the few Hollywood figures to compete with the enormous uh, digital players that entered streaming video. Of course, uh, Netflix, particularly Amazon, and now seemingly Apple as well. So I had this interesting conversation with my wife in exasperation. I think my daughter likes to veg out sometimes and watch um, Daniel Tiger or Peppa sure. Pig. And they were all reliably on demand on Xfinity On Demand, you know, our Comcast cable package until suddenly that shelf was pretty bare. And you were directed and maybe you could go to a PBS Passport thing or uh, whoever, you know. HBO and Children's Television Workshop and, and you know, Amazon Prime even had a ton of these episodes. And now with this reshuffling and everybody putting them up behind their own firewalls, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, anxiety in my house is how many logins do we need, honey? I mean, you're already Amazon Prime. You're already Spotify. You're already Netflix. Uh, at what point do we hit up against kind of the natural ceiling where we're thinking in the back of our mind, if a fully loaded cable package costs 150 bucks, am I really better off if I'm if I'm kind of splaying $200, $220 across a dozen different logins? You might be in the sense that at the moment you're probably paying for a ton of uh, channels that you'll never watch anything on. And that's the cable idea. It's that you're it's like you're paying for the right to go into a Costco and take almost anything off the shelf. But it costs a lot of money to do that. And there are maybe three tiers. Uh, and the gold thing that you're paying, you know, the, the pay through the nose option, you can take almost anything, you know, shy of a car, right? Uh, and it seems to me that if you truly use Amazon and you truly use Netflix uh, and maybe one or two other services, maybe HBO, suddenly you're paying, call it $50, $60 a month, but not $140 a month. And maybe that's worth it to mm. you. Now, look, I cover media, so I'm uh, we have this conversation at home all the time. I cover media, and it seems to me that it's worth it for me to have the cable news channels. It's worth it for me to have the over-the-top channels. I like to watch sports occasionally. I don't get to very much. Uh, I don't really watch ESPN as much as I, I might otherwise be inclined to do just because of life happens. Uh, but, you know, if you cut all these things, would I pay $15 a month or more for ESPN on its own? I probably wouldn't uh, in this day and age. Uh, but I pay for Major League Baseball so I can see all the Angels games that I have the opportunity to watch. And likewise, me with the Dodgers, right? I'm happy to pay the Dodgers directly. I mean, we're going to get into a whole different zone of discussion here, but if they offered me a reliable kind of 162-game virtual reality-type optionality, I have quite a willingness to pay to port me to Dodger Stadium, uh, you know, 80-plus games a year. <laughs> you and Wolf uh, But Blitzer. that's a whole other thing. Well, look, and look. Me and Wolf Flitzer and Charlie Steiner, you know, but right? You, to, go back, uh, to go back for a moment, though, to your kids thing, because that's a very interesting example. We think of children's programming, particularly non-commercial children's programming, as a public service, which, by the way, it is. And, uh, you know, I actually did stories on this when uh, Sesame Workshop effectively went over to HBO and sought haven, sought refuge from the storm because a lot of their finances were coming – uh, from the merchandising of, you know, Elmo dolls and things like that, and also DVDs, and DVDs effectively went away. 
So they were looking not at losing money, but but closing up shop ultimately. And so they got a lot of money from HBO, and a lot of people said this is outrageous. And you know, it essentially locks a fresh. Uh, and I do subscribe to HBO, so my kids can watch it. But they it locks fresh uh, Sesame Street shows uh, away behind that paywall for six months, and then they come into the open. Now, if you get PBS Kids as an app, or you watch just your local PBS station, you are watching. Uh, Sesame Street shows for no cost. The stations don't pay anything for it. They do not pay a dollar for it uh, because they basically can't afford to anymore. Uh, And HBO is subsidizing the creation of new shows. They go on rotation. If you get things through the stations, you get a certain number of episodes for Daniel Tiger or for uh, Sesame Street or for other uh, PBS kids shows. Uh, and if you pay extra passport, like $100 a year, you know, a little bit like a contribution to public radio station uh, monthly, then you get access to a greater back catalog. But HBO is effectively subsidizing the creation of these things, and that is the bargain that had to be struck. Uh, and they've also cre- they've also created another show. So the, the question is, is this too much? And the answer is uh, – I th- when in talking with the people at Sesame Street about the numbers, you know, they were very worried about an existential question. So the question isn't really is it frustrating. The question is, would there have been a Sesame Street without this? Really? Oh yeah. I'll send you the link. Like this is a real story that I did at the time because the CEO kind of had to break it down and be very clear about it. And there was real pushback. People felt this was elitist to have HBO first. And I understand that. People said, look, uh, HBO has uh, been winnowing down or uh, the Sesame Street went from 60 minutes to 30 minutes. It shows a dumbing down. But their argument was in surveying kids and watching their viewing habits that kids uh, – They were basically having to tease when Elmo was coming three or four times an episode to get them through a full hour and that kids watched more educational TV if they weren't all an hour long. So there there was very interesting stuff. They were saying, look, we're trying to use analytics to try to figure out more ways to give kids good, good content, not less. Well, David, for our part, we found refuge, I mean, amid this dislocation in the welcoming trotters of one Peppa Pig. Um, and that causes a lot of exasperation in our house. We always thought Daniel Tiger and, and Clifford the Big Red Dog were reliable, but suddenly there's all sorts of fear and loathing on the on the cable dial. But uh, we'll put that on the back burner for the time being. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this holy grail, this Spotify of journalism, uh, this Netflix of journalism they're calling Apple News Plus, where you pay $10 a month, 120 bucks a year, and get access to all manner of, of magazines, new issues of The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, Wired, The Wall Street Journal. Uh, what are the economics of that? How does that work? So it's interesting, and I don't think we 100% understand it. But uh, let me t- tell you a bit about the foundational, uh, uh, the, the, I guess, the birth story of this, uh, you know, Jarl, right? Uh, this is actually based off uh, what was an app called Texture that Apple bought, I think it was last year or the year before. Uh, and I subscribed to it uh, because I wanted to experiment with it and understand it. I talked to some of the executives who were creating it. Uh, Texture... Uh, I think it was called something else first, but Texture was basically this app for that for $9.99 a month or whatever it was, gave you access to a bunch of Condé Nast and Old Time Inc. and Hearst magazines. And the idea was that you had it uh, and Apple bought it and it became the foundation of this Apple News Plus app. Like if you go to your phone, you get Apple News, you get a certain number of stories. It's almost a little bit like Twitter moments or something. It's telling you about some of the events of the day. 
uh, and loading up stories. Uh, in this case, uh, they wanted to make sure they had some newspaper content as well. They struck deals. We're not able to strike deals with uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post. So Tim Cook's folks struck deals with uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, Wall Street Journal. And Murdoch has always had a thing and a, and a, a fascination and admiration for Steve Jobs and for Apple. Uh, and also with the Los Angeles Times, which is seeking to reclaim its position as, as a leading national paper as well as a major regional force uh, under new ownership. Uh, but – Here's the economics. You get access to a bunch a bunch of magazines, a whole slew of them, those that are your favorites, those that are not. And if you're a heavy magazine reader, it may well be worth your while to do it. Uh, it's a lot of content to wade through. And, you know, one's hope is that it improves. I did find that it was a little uh, – it took some navigating when I was uh, reading it through texture. Uh, I think it's – the experience on Apple News Plus is much the same. You really have to kind of work at navigating a lot of options there. Uh, there's also uh, the question of how much content you have. I don't think you have uniformly uh, total access to all the archives. In the Wall Street Journal, I think you have the archives of several days or maybe a week or so. You certainly don't have the entire back archive that you would if you subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I think that the, the experience reading uh, some of these – not all of them are optimized for reading on Apple devices. They are kind of like PDFs, you know, like snapshots of pages. And that's not, an, to my mind, a terrific way to read on the iPhone in particular. So I find that, you know, if you're doing this on the iPad, it would be a much more satisfying experience than the iPhone. It's just not quite there yet. And the question is whether some of these magazines, because Apple doesn't control it, are going to put in the effort to do the extra work and pay the extra cost to optimize this for the folks they're getting. Now, you know, Wall Street Journal costs three times as much to describe to digitally as it would to get this more limited uh, access to Wall Street Journal content through Apple News Plus, but maybe that's enough for you. Uh, the journal is, we're told, able to hire several doves and new journalists to hire non-financial reporters, the kinds who uh, would cover sort of lifestyle, maybe politics, general news, things that might be more of interest to uh, readers as opposed to the business subscribers who, who make up uh, a lot of the core sure. of the journal. Uh, so – you know, the question is, is this going to cannibalize subscriptions to magazines, which have been struggling so hard to maintain folks? Or is it going to maybe, because of how many of these devices are in people's pockets, as Oprah memorably put it, uh, is it going to create new people paying at least something? I mean, Apple takes, you know, I've heard various uh, descriptions, but call it between 33 and 50 cents on the dollar on this stuff. So uh, publishers are not getting... Uh, dollar for dollar, they're not getting $10 in their pocket a month. They're getting maybe two-thirds to half of that. Uh, and so wow. is it worth them doing this to get an extra $6 a month or so? Uh, probably. But but the question is you know, whether it eats into or erodes their ability to grow digital subscriptions. Uh, and so I think it's a real question mark for the industry. Uh, but it's you know it's great to have on a relatively small device in front of you access to all these titles, and my hope and expectation would be some of if it really gets momentum that you'd see a lot more uh, shaping and optimizing uh, the the content, the articles, the pictures, the galleries in such a way that it's it's more of a pleasure to actually read it on those devices. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to David Folkenflik. He's media correspondent for NPR News. He's joining us from New York. David, I was surprised in that uh, rollout. You know, Apple likes to do these 
these grandiose things. Steve Jobs has left this earth, you know, it was, uh, what, seven, eight years ago. But Tim Cook went up there and released the news of Apple News Plus. But one notable missing player was the New York Times company, the resurgent New York Times, which is now worth five and a half billion dollars. Still, Apple has a market cap of $912 billion. Even so, it was able to say, uh, no thanks, guys, we're good. We're doing fine. You can uh, take the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, your 250 other titles. We don't need you. What did you think about that? I think the Times is very protective of its digital revenues. I don't think it particularly wants to share uh, uh, the subscription rates with anybody. It, it, it doesn't have to. I think that uh, although I believe Apple is making certain metrics and analytics available to its partners, I think the New York Times likes to control those too. Uh, you know, there's a lot of distrust from certain kinds of content producers about the amount of control Apple has over uh, over podcasts and the way in which it controls data and is very controlling about about that sort of stuff. Uh, in this case, I think the revenue is, is the main driver. Uh, the Times initially said it wanted 10 million subscribers. It's hoping somehow to get up to 20, I believe. Uh, and, you know, it's really reaching out to people who value news at a high level, uh, a sophisticated, full report. It's offering much more online than it even does in print. And it is aggressively trying to pursue people throughout the U.S., but also abroad, English-speaking people, and in some cases, non-English-speaking people, uh, to do this to, because of the value that people are placing on quality news and also the erosion of a lot of, uh, uh, you know, once glorious news brands. So I think they look at digital being such a strong leg of their uh foundation that they don't particularly want to share it. And I think that the New York Times uh, doesn't fully trust Apple to uh, strike a deal that's going to be in its best interest. I think the New York Times wants to generate digital subscribers, digital readers, have the data, have the revenue and control it itself. I mean, to be sure, none of these none of these kind of holy grail platform uh, saviors have worked out, whether it was the iPad in 2010, Medium, Facebook videos. Remember, everybody was kind of pivoting to these in in the age of the omnipotence of the platform. Could you trust one of these guys? Would they actually re-funnel uh, revenue back into these companies? And it turned out to be more cannibalistic, more kind of zero sum. And so you can imagine the New York Times' position right now. They've had quite a Trump bump. They've seen an explosion in digital subs, uh, such a granularity in digital content. They've even become a podcasting giant, right? Uh, all of this innovation that you can see how they got their mojo back. I mean, they can and will strike deals, but I don't think they ceased sharing a significant uh, portion of digital revenue at a lower rate than they charge by far. I mean, they charge hundreds of dollars digitally a year. Uh, I don't see them, them thinking, hey, we can charge somebody $100 a year, $120 a year, and have to share a third to a half of that as being a good deal for them. And their app works quite wonderfully inside the iPhone already. They're a high-end... Uh, brand, people know who they are. Uh, I don't think that they see that being one of many inside the Apple News app is useful to them. What is your read on what's going on with AT&T and Time Warner? That that company has been integrated and then some chiefly for HBO. And you've seen Richard Plepler maybe ousted. They gave him the cold shoulder. Other Time Warner people leaving left and right. AT&T, which is now this Texas, you know, the old Southwestern Bell, what the remnants of Ma Bell, truly getting its hooks into something. I wonder how many times at cocktail parties you're asked if this is the second coming of AOL Time Warner, January 2000. I have not been asked that. Uh, 
you know, there has been a lot of to do about some of the big names in the executive ranks who have left, particularly uh, HBO chief Plotler, uh, because he was so integral. Although, you know, I remember reporting when it was, I think, Chris Albrecht was uh, his uh, predecessor at the, you know, head of HBO and had been the guy who had greenlit The Wire and other important deals, was seen as a creative genius. And uh, uh, I believe he assaulted a girlfriend or a, a companion in Las Vegas and he, he was out and people thought that would be the end for HBO somehow and actually it flourished. Uh, to me, this seems almost like if you were to go back a year and say, hey, a really big company is going to take over a, a you know, a telecommunications company is going to take over a big but smaller uh, content creator in the entertainment realm and there are going to be some executive shakeups. And he'd say, yep, that sounds about right. And that's what happened here. It's just a kind of cold, steely logic. Uh, people came in, different corporate culture, different sensibility, uh, charged political climate and said, we want to own whatever we do so that we feel confident in the direction we're going in. And if we make mistakes, it's not because of somebody we don't trust. But what somebody is, who owed themselves to okay, us. Here, so, what's, what's the play? Are you trying to make the AT&T bundle indispensable, saying it's not just a commodity wireless package and we're no longer competing on nights and weekends, blah, 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 data access, texts, um, you know, calling over Wi-Fi. But in fact, we can bundle in something as sticky and desirable as HBO with this. Is that – was that really worth – I mean, and this – AT&T is now one of the most indebted companies in the, you know, let's say the Fortune 100. Um, it's a it's a huge debt load to kind of buy this shiny, shiny bobble to integrate uh, uh, Manhattan with the rest of the country and CNN, for example, in Atlanta and parts of it in Manhattan. Much easier said than done. Totally. Most mega mergers are not worth it. Most of the frictional costs, most of the spinoffs, the layoffs, the whatever, it just seems like ultimately, you know, it's to the advantage of the executives involved, both those doing the acquiring, you know, get greater, you know, a greater foundation on which to justify paychecks and compensation. And those that get bought out get huge paydays. I mean, let's be honest about that. And then there are a lot of layoffs. Now, there may be certain inefficiencies or or overlapping functions that get streamlined out, and that's fine. Uh, and maybe at times there's fresh blood brought in to reinvigorate it. Maybe a new corporate owner, you know, infuses it with smarter insights, uh, investments, and sensibilities. But, you know, by and large, major mergers like this, it's hard for me to tell that it's uh, it's more effective. It certainly, you know, it seems to me the media goes through these waves of consolidation and uh, and then disposals. You know, it's like an accordion going in and out. Uh, AOL Time Warner you mentioned before, uh, which was – in some ways, the predecessor company of this. And AOL was the huge shiny bauble, wildly overvalued just before that particular uh, tech bubble burst for a while. Uh, and AOL itself was deriving most of its revenue from people uh, paying for dial-up phone service and remained – that remained the core of the AOL uh, business until you know, it essentially vanished under the umbrella of Yahoo. You know, So uh, AOL's uh, – you know, did some interesting things on the content side. Some very smart people came up there. It it did gangbuster business for a while, but it was not only the worst uh, media merger in American history, it was the worst corporate merger in all of American corporate history. Bar none. And yeah. bar none. I don't think this is going to be that. I do think there are questions about, you know, AT&T said, well, we can do certain things where we offer certain kinds of content 
to AT&T paying customers in ways that are discounted or free or more available. We'll strike deals with Netflix. Uh, we'll do some other things. But they kind of had to promise not to advan- disadvantage their competitors too much as a way of getting through. You're listening to Full Disclosure, RVA founded and produced. We air weekly on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News, Saturday nights at 6, Sunday nights at 8. All was available on NPR.org, the NPR One app, and on iTunes at link fullderadio.com. You could find out all sorts of info about upcoming live events and online extras at facebook.com slash fullderadio. We're talking to NPR's David Folkenflik. Uh, David, are you surprised that AT&T Warner still controls CNN? I mean, what with, you know, Donald Trump so openly disliking CNN and and these guys ultimately didn't divest it in that mega merger? There were reasonable ways in which one could say this is too much consolidation of media. I talked to a lot of uh, lawyers and corporate executives and people who think uh, – finance folks, people who think hard about this stuff. You know, the, the distinction between this and some other kinds of deals like Disney, Fox, is that AT&T and Time Warner had virtually no overlap. AT&T did a tiny, tiny bit of content creation in a tiny, tiny studio, right? Uh, that was seen by almost no one. Uh, but Time Warner no longer had, for example, a cable uh, distribution uh, – cable uh, provider business, Right, that was sold off. That's right. and became Spectrum. Uh, it was actually spun off years ago, and then even that was sold off to Spectrum. So AT and T didn't have an overlap. So this was considered, uh, uh, you know, a vertical integration where you're getting every step of the production chain of uh, of creation to to you know go back to certain kinds of business theory, as opposed to two competitors merging together. Uh, so uh, you know, there it is true. AT and T had a point that. This had not really been challenged in about 30 years, this kind of uh, this kind of merger. And at the same time, it was big enough. It's large enough. It's one of the, uh, the, the, the most giant content creators in the country when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to news, that it's reasonable to scrutinize this heavily. The Trump administration's involvement, uh, although led by an extremely respected antitrust uh, lawyer atop that division of the U.S. Justice Department – uh, at least in the atmospherics, seemed dra- dra- driven in part by the president's antipathy to some of the coverage that CNN has provided, which is not a good grounds on which to decide uh, antitrust policy. Correct me if I'm mistaken, from the symbiosis of it, Trump has been very fortunate for CNN. It's never posted the kind of profits that it has. Right. Part of the reason why AT&T was interested in Time Warner is that CNN has been, regardless of its standing in the ratings against the other cable channels and uh, news channels and particularly uh, particularly Fox News, CNN is wildly profitable right now. And it's very profitable as a television property and it's very t- profitable in a different way as a digital property in ways that it didn't used to be, you know, say 10 years ago. Uh, it's producing a ton of content. It's able to uh, uh, achieve a, a strong degree of profits off it in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year on, just on digital alone. And so that's made it very appealing. You know, CNN and uh, HBO and in some ways the channels that carry uh, major live sporting events uh, like the NCAA tournament uh, for basketball, those things have made it appealing for for sure, for uh, for AT and T and AT and T now and has you know studios, uh, uh, movie studios out in Hollywood and you know it's got a couple other major properties there. But 
I don't know that simply because guys who are from a slightly more conservative uh, financial and uh, political cultural uh, kind of mindset uh, in Texas took over this company that somehow it's going to be run brilliantly better. Uh, I think that's to be determined. I don't know that the viewer of TBS or TNT or, uh, you know, Turner Cartoon Network or whatever uh, is going to be enraptured and say, thank God AT&T owns this or curse them for owning it. Yeah, no, there's part of me that imagines like Bobby and J.R. Ewing watching HBO's Real Sex or some of the more graphic NC-17 scenes in, in Game of Thrones and some of the other things that have really put HBO over the top, pun intended. I am curious, though, uh, David. Although don't, by the way, don't forget that that they forced some of the more sexualized content off the air from HBO uh, soon after the tape. Speaking of which, who owns Cinemax while I have you? I don't even know. Does it even exist? <laughs> I think Cinemax, uh, if I recall correctly, is part of the HBO uh, universe. And I think that there's some question about them. Uh, Sticking around. Uh well, I was going to say, I think there's some question about them tightening the screws there as well. Sure. Showtime is part of CBS. Uh, well, but I think that's that's part of the same pantheon, and there's some questions raised there. But CB, HBO in particular, they wanted to clean up, even as as you say, there's definitely a sexualized mandate, at least in recent years, about uh, – you know, somewhat gratuitous nudity in certain kinds of HBO uh, dramas and and uh, and programs. Wow, all my exes live in Texas. I should ask you, Verizon, AT and T Wireless is nemesis. I mean, it it does have a kind of a foot in the door with this, even though it wrote down the majority value of Yahoo, AOL, and HuffPo. But you haven't seen it go anywhere near whole hog into content. Uh, are they kind of taking a wait and see approach? I think that's right. There was a, said to be a flirtation uh, with the question of CBS. Uh, that was all in play as uh, Sumner Redstone's daughter, Sherry, uh, was exerting control of it, wresting it away from Les Moonves. It turned out Les Moonves managed to wrest it away from himself with sure. the uh, ex- uh, disclosure and exposure of, of one scandalous uh, accusation after another about his own conduct uh, toward colleagues there uh, of a truly reprehensible nature. Uh, but it was said that uh, Verizon was circling and trying to figure out if it could, if it could acquire CBS, uh, and if so, whether that would be a valuable thing to do. It's certainly what all the other kids in the neighborhood are doing. It's what Comcast did. It's now what AT and T did. Uh, Verizon's the major third player in that party, right? Mm. Uh, and so. You know, everything old is new again, as we say. It would not surprise me at all if Verizon, with its uh, riches and its revenues off broadband uh, and off telephony to some extent, is able to uh, muscle its way into that quarter. The question is what they do with it. I think people think, uh, you know, the idea, and Moonves was a big proponent of this, is that content is king. You have to have something to put on cable. You have to have something to put on Uh, the phones now. You have to have something to put online that people are going to want to consume and consume loyally and repeatedly and at length. And so the idea is if you can do that and do it in a way where it's financially advantageous to you, that's great. And some of the problems is, you know, are you going to get into the world where Comcast and Verizon can slow down your ability to receive fast streaming stuff from Netflix or Amazon or people that they haven't struck deals with? Uh, are they going to advantage their own? They say, well, that's not in our interest because we want people to like our broadband service and not complain about it and shift mm-hmm. to somebody else. But the reality is, is like cable itself, uh, 
there aren't usually a whole lot of choices that you have. It's usually only one or two that you can choose among. You know, I don't know how I don't know how inside baseball you get, but they've kind of built a, a bit of an analogous CNBC.com with Yahoo Finance. I don't know if you've noticed that Verizon mm-hmm. has been on a hiring spree, brought in correspondence from Bloomberg, from the street.com. You could watch it on demand. Uh, Yahoo Finance has an enormous foot in the door because it is that premier portal destination for people looking up stock information and press releases and whatnot. Uh, the editor-in-chief is Andy Serwer, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Fortune. So I, yep. I step back from all this and wonder, wow, how different the world is. I mean, you talk about Time Warner breaking up. Time Warner used to have a magazine division. It tried to go digital. It didn't go digital. It used to have a cable company underneath it. And it's amazing to me how these things break apart and reassemble um, in, in such whiplashing fashion every 10 years. Yeah, it's almost like a Lego empire, you know, where things you, you pull it apart at the end of the day and the next day you're kind of putting it all back together and it resembles it, but it's in different forms. I don't know. It's uh, uh, I think that's right. I mean, think of what CBS did with CBSN. CBS, uh, there were talks at one point of CBS striking a deal with Bloomberg uh, for cable TV. There were talks about CBS and CNN at one point. These were legit talks at very high level. Uh, combining their news operations, figuring out who would do it for whom, uh, probably CNN doing more for CBS as a way of, you know, offshoring uh, some of their money, uh, some of the costs. Uh, and yet they didn't go that route. What they did was they created CBSN, which was a digital channel. CBS News. And, and it's good. I've been on it. I enjoy it. Like, I enjoy the it too. interviews are less scripted. Uh, the... Uh, than cable news generally and particularly than than broadcast news tends to be. The anchors tend to be very fluid. You do wonder who's watching it. And when there is all this consternation about the CBS morning show and they just had a correspondent leave. And is that not demographically relevant to what you're trying to do? If you appear, are you are you hitting the 25 to 54 demo? I often wonder when I appear on these streaming things only, whether you talk Cheddar or CBSN or, you know, CNN Digital, who who's watching it? It's smaller for sure. Uh, you know, you're going to be measured in the, I don't know, small hundreds of thousands, the the high tens of thousands, depending on time of day. Uh, but they are, you know, grooming a next bench of talent that in the CBSN thing I think is pretty considerable. They are creating content that they can put on their other shows relatively quickly. They have the reporters. So although I'm not a fan of simply – stationing reporters by the stick, as they call the satellite TV trucks, and making them just do endless updates. It means that they can find outlets for journalism to live that are both a streaming service and that can be viewed online separately as stories. Uh, And that means that CBS News is not simply constrained to the, call it 19 and a half minutes that shows up on the CBS Evening News or the longer stretch of the newsier elements of the uh, CBS This Morning, but is able to do some thoughtful stuff. And, you know, the claim is, although they don't break it out publicly, the claim is, is that it has turned a profit uh, so that it is, and it's reaching a much younger demographic. So for them, that's a useful thing to do as they figure out, you know, CBS News, uh, despite all the scandals the last couple of years, uh, Charlie Rose, Jeff Fager, nonetheless, uh, CBS News has, uh, you know, a pretty venerable brand. It has in recent years re-embraced the idea of a slightly harder news focus than I think ABC and NBC has. Uh, And they're also, you know, have a greatly aging viewership. They want to make sure, find ways to be relevant. This is a way in which they're experimenting to do it. And that's what reminds me of the sort of Yahoo, can we 
just sort of bypass the conventional cable channel and create a financial news channel without sort of all the costs of distribution that requires that still is valuable uh, you know that that draws a viewership that is informative, journalistically worthwhile, and makes us a buck or two. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to NPR Media Correspondent David Folkenflik, who's joining us from New York. David authored the book Murdoch's World: The Last of the Old Media Empires. Um, the LA Times called this book "meaty reading laced with delicious anecdotes." And one anecdote that you had recently. Um, in March was this former Murdoch executive who said he quit over Fox News's anti-Muslim rhetoric. Um, I don't recall if you broke that story. It was really poignant. I mean, this yeah. guy was there uh, well into 2017, and he was offended over coverage of Muslims, immigrants, and race by Fox News and other Murdoch news outlets. Um, I am I am curious. I mean, he said scaring people, demonizing immigrants, creating like a fervor or an anxiety about what was happening in our country. Quote, former News Corp senior vice president Joseph Azam told NPR in his first public comments on the former employer, News Corp Fox News. It fundamentally bothered me a lot of days, and I think I probably wasn't the only one, he says. I do wonder now when I see they've taken it to a whole different level. Um, last night was Tucker Carlson outright calling Chris Hayes, his time slot competitor on MSNBC, a girly man. Um, uh, you saw what happened with Judge Jeanine Pirro. She got a slap on the wrist, but she came out and uh, uh, worried about a country with people in hijabs. I mean, it was looked at as overtly Muslim and whatnot. And I understand that this is an intensely profitable Overtly network. anti-Muslim. Yeah. Anti-Muslim. I understand that it's an intensely profitable network. But I always wonder, and I always mean to ask you, where are the Murdoch sons when they see stuff like this? Are they just content to sit back and let agitprop do its thing? Or do they, do they kind of hit the gong at some point? So let's not forget, this is now Fox Corp, which is the parent right. company of Fox News, uh, slimmed down after the Murdoch family sold most of their entertainment holdings to Disney. Uh, and, uh, you know, James Murdoch is still a major shareholder in Fox Corp, but he's kind of out of it. Uh, the more liberal of the two sons, uh, Lachlan Murdoch, a bit more conservative, said to be a gentler soul than his uh, father, uh, is essentially running it with his dad, uh, who's in his late 80s by now. Uh, and, uh, you know, Lachlan has not been a presence on this on the content side. You know, James was embarrassed by stuff that happened on Fox or made it known that he was. And his wife certainly appears to have been as she sort of used to be vi vigorously subtweeting Fox News at times uh, on Twitter. Uh, uh, Catherine Murdoch, but Lachlan has not been much of a presence on it. You know, Suzanne Scott is the new CEO of Fox, and she's been a longtime programming executive there uh, since basically the founding of the network uh, as a junior aide to the folks who were helping to create it with Roger, the late Roger Ailes. And she at times has intervened and said, hey, we've got to protect the brand here. You guys can't let guests say truly offensive and truly crazy things. Uh, but, you know, Tucker Carlson uh, has said things that are offensive to all kinds of folks. Uh, and there were revelations from the uh, left of center uh, media watchdog group and advocacy group Media Matters in which they came up with all kinds of offensive things he said, you know, six, eight, ten years ago on Bubble the Love Sponge, which is a shock jock program. Uh, and – you know, they basically treated it as a free speech thing. Hey, and one of the things that they do is they always say, well, these are opinion shows. So you can't, you know, judge us by our coverage. And, you know, yes, we have strong voices on opinion, but this is what people trust and love about Fox News. But 
they then watch and see what their advertisers do. And Janine Pirro was getting a lot of pushback. And so they, they finally came out after a bit and said, well, this is offensive and doesn't reflect Fox News. And although they refused to confirm that she was uh, suspended – she was suspended for two weeks. What, she but, went on know, a spa retreat? This is what I don't understand. It kind of Oh, resembles... she was paid. Like, this was not, <laughs> you know, any rational news organization, if somebody has done something wrong, if they have plagiarized, if they have slandered somebody, if they have said something deeply offensive to, to somebody with no real meaning, gratuitously, uh, you say what it is you're you – apologize and you say what it is you're apologizing for. Fox doesn't do that. Fox said, says this is inappropriate and we've handled the matter internally as though they're parents in a family. Well, this is a forward-facing family. This is not actually a family. It's a major corporation that makes over $2 billion a year. Uh, and, and that's just Fox News alone. And, you know, the whole point of journalism, which Fox claims to be in, is that, you know, it's about the relationship with the audience uh, and the relationship to fact and truth and fairness doesn't mean it can't be a point of view. Doesn't mean there can't be partisanship or a sensibility, but it means that the first loyalty should be the audience to transparency and to the facts. And those are not the loyalties that Fox honors, except its loyalty to its core base and not offending what the base wants to hear. So it's uh, you know Suzanne Scott and the folks there are trying to thread a very narrow the eye of a very narrow needle, uh, which is to say uh, they are trying to take actions so that mainstream advertisers feel comfortable uh, advertising their wares on their programs uh, and at the same time not offend their base, which, by the way, includes the president of the United States. Sure. You know, oh, Janine Pirro religiously... is a minor, minor figure in the political realm. But Tucker, Carl minor... Tucker Carlson is throwing great red meat to uh, you know the Trump base, Trump himself, when he said, and I quote on Tucker Carlson tonight, he's saying MSNBC's Chris Hayes is, quote, what every man would be if feminists had absolute power, power close quote. Um, and I'm thinking that, OK, Roger Ailes passed away. Bill O'Reilly's no longer at Fox News. Bill Shine, he's somewhere between the White House and Fox News, almost as kind of a uh, an intermediary. Who is the locus of control editorially? Do they just let these guys go out and let Hannity say what he wants to say? Uh, let this guy say what he wants to say. Janine Pirro is a whole other thing. I see on occasion you have Shep Smith and uh, some other person standing Chris up Wallace. there. Chris Wallace actually being the voice of, of uh, what's qualitative versus what's empirical. Uh, but you hear it every now and then and you wonder who is con in control, especially in, in Roger Ailes' absence. Here's the God's honest truth. Uh, Fox has, if anything, become uh, more conservative, uh, more reflexively pro-Trump uh, since the death of Roger Ailes and since his removal uh, actually in, in July of 2016 when he was surrounded with his own scandals uh, as chairman of Fox. Uh, Ailes was strong enough to provide a break. Right now, you know, Suzanne Scott is not strong enough to provide a break uh, on, say, Sean Hannity. Uh, it's useful to Hannity and Ingram and even Carlson, who initially started out as just sort of anti-Trump anti and is now seemingly cast his lot in. Um, it's useful for them to see just how far they can push it because in this moment, that's what their base rewards. Their base and the president's uh, you know, sort of Trump world red hat uh, waving folks are basically the same cadre of people. It's not identical, but it's pretty – pretty cons con you know consonant with one another and uh fox does not have control of sean hannity you know f look on on just before on the eve of the election in november for the midterms just just a few months ago uh sean hannity and janine Pirro appeared on a 
uh, campaign platform physically with the president of the United States as he was trying to rally support for Senate candidates, right? Well, I guess if it's not masquerading as a journalistic organization anymore, if it, it could be up front that, you know, it's an editorial organization, it's an opinion uh, think tanky type place, then, then there aren't uh, church versus state lines to worry about. Yeah, but I think that they feel they're riding a Bronco rather than uh, uh, rather than just delighted with it. I think that they, this is a new dynamic for them. Rupert has thrown his lot in. Rupert Murdoch has thrown his lot in with Trump, who is a figure for whom he has not a whole lot of respect, but uh, he has access and influence. And if he treats Trump with uh, some measure of respect as though they're peers – uh, Trump will respond very well. It's the one thing you know about the president. He really responds to how well you take treat him. And so it's in Murdoch's interest, uh, as he's always wanted this level of access and interaction with the White House and with the person in the Oval Office and never quite had it at this level. He's had it in Australia repeatedly. He's had it in Britain repeatedly. He's never quite had it in the US. He has it now. The choice he has to make is that he has it with somebody whose policies he doesn't always agree with and whose intellectual stature he kind of has contempt for. But that's the deal that Murdoch struck. So Suzanne Scott has talent below her uh, who see th- who have struck their own alliances with the president rather directly. Uh, and she has a guy above her who sees his interest lying very close to Trump. Uh, you know, Murdoch is a pragmatic, cagey guy. He felt like he could do business with Hillary Clinton. Uh, but you know, it's working for him to do it this way. So Fox is making a ton of money, and yet they're dealing with more brush fires than ever of times where people come on and say crazy stuff. They have banned some guests who said particularly demeaning uh, or contemptible or unfounded things. But, you know, take you know story I covered closely. Take the Seth Rich issue. Fox has never apologized for saying that this person – for reporting, not just speculating on all of their opinion shows, which God know they did a lot after the death of Seth Rich in, in the summer of 2016. You know, Rich, remember, was a young Democratic National Committee member. I think he was going to join the Clinton campaign. He died and instantly conspiracy theories sprouted up that uh, his death was commissioned or in some way related to the idea that he had leaked thousands of Democratic emails to WikiLeaks or to other folks to post online. Uh, an allegation for which there's no proof either that that the killing was linked to it or that he even had any involvement with that. Well, you know, we now have from the Mueller report that the Russians were the ones who commissioned and engineered the hacking of those emails. Uh, Fox had to withdraw its story on Seth Rich in May of 2017, uh, you know, within eight days of posting it. But it's it's never apologized. It's never taken uh, – uh, it's never taken the move to say we're sorry to the family. It's never offered a full accounting of what happened on that story. This is not the way a normal news organization goes. That story is just as deflating as uh, the Memogate story with Dan Rather or the Benghazi Gate story with Laura Logan were to CBS. It is a huge, huge stain on a news organization that they've never grappled with. And they don't have to and it's not in their interest to from a purely uh, empirical point of view – as long as you're not thinking about yourself as a journalist. You know, David, uh, whenever I have you on, and it's a joy having you on, there is a masochistic part of the episode where I could effectively call it meet depress, as in D-E-P-R-E-S-S, with all the depressing news still in newspaper land 20 years into this, (laughs) this secular 
depression for uh, newspaper publishers. Uh, Pew Research Center analysis said that from 2008 to last to 2017, overall newsroom employment dropped nationally by 23 percent. And in newspaper newsrooms, employment dropped by 45 percent. More than 2,400 media jobs have been eliminated so far this year, according to Business Insider. Indeed, today we get, uh, sadly, it wasn't an April Fool's joke. It came out on April Fool's that the Cleveland Plain Dealer lays off a third of its unionized newsroom staff. It's, you had to do a kind of a triple take to say that the Plain Dealer had a unionized staff of 340 journalists two decades ago. That soon will be reduced to 33? So that is depressing, and that is uh, on its face problematic. I will offer you a caveat, which is that it's owned by Advance uh, Publications, which is really the newspaper wing of Condé Nast. And if you look at their news organizations, uh, this sounds like a technicality, but it makes a difference. Uh, They have set up these sort of parallel digital news uh, outfits uh, in all of the markets in which they really operate, in New Orleans or Portland or Northeast Ohio or Cleveland is or and other major markets. Uh, and as a result, the number of uh, newsroom employees specific to the newspapers is significantly different than the number of journalists uh, assigned with the task of covering that region. And so a lot of the – as I understand it, a lot of the watchdog reporting, a lot of the enterprise reporting, a lot of the other stuff uh, that is in the paper and that is on their websites – originates from outside the newspaper's uh, formal newsroom. And so it is a depressing number to see that. I say this as a longtime uh, former uh, newspaper guild member for the Baltimore Sun uh, and a formal local reporter. And as somebody who belongs to a union at NPR, like that, that's that distressing. Sun, but is the Baltimore Sun Tribune? The Baltimore Sun's part of Tribune. And so the Sun, you know, at its peak had about 410 journalists, 408 when I was there. And it's down to maybe 120 to 140. And so By it's, way, you know, greatly I, I, diminished. I loved you in the fourth season of The Wire, David Fulkenflick. No, all kidding, <laughs> all kidding aside, what happens to the have-nots? You and I have spoken clearly about the resurgent New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, which is billionaire-backed, the Washington Post, owned by the world's wealthiest person in Jeff Bezos, even the Los Angeles Times, formerly of uh, Tribune, and you've covered that quite a bit. Uh, Tribune has been scandal-plagued, and it's had a horrific decade. What happens to the have-nots, the Tribunes, the McClatchy's, the Gannett's? Uh, and with them having shareholder activists and hedge funds at their throats. How does this shake out? I think the ones that are controlled by uh, hedge funds uh, are going to be in a very, very poor place indeed. You've seen that with the San Jose Mercury News, which really did receive uh, a diminishment from, you know, call it 200 to about 26, give or take. Uh, you saw Denver, when I last checked, was down to 60 reporters to cover a a metro region of in excess of 3 million people, uh, and I think it's been diminished since that. Uh, you're just seeing a, a lack of seriousness about the ability, and, and it comes at the same time that all these papers are trying to put down paywalls. So they're saying, we're giving you less than we ever have before. Please pay us more than you ever have before to read us online. Uh, and you see that in talking with the reporters, you know, I, I talked to one guy who covers a six-county region ringing Denver, uh, and that's... Uh, uh, owned by a company called Digital First, but in reality, it's owned by a uh, Alden Global Capital based in New York, and uh, several guys who own a hedge fund who, you know, are essentially removing the fat and removing the muscle, and soon removing the bone and the marrow, and it's a real problem. Uh, 
And I think the Cleveland thing is a less severe version of that, but problematic. But I think you have to evaluate them by their what they're doing journalistically. The Baltimore Sun has just uncovered one uh, ethical problem, you know, basically seems like on its face corruption uh, move after another involving Baltimore's mayor, Kathy Pugh, uh, even with its diminished uh, news staff. And it did great work no, but on the Freddie David, Gray look, look even at like the that. Look even at the New York Daily News last year that had a horrific Ugh. day where they effectively almost shut off the lights. I mean, this is not just a small market thing. A lot of it is I feel that those who have had lo- the luck of having um, – billionaires come in and tied them over until there is a business model. And and it's very unique with the New York Times figured it out. Maybe the Wall Street Journal on a B2B level with a lot of people expensing their logins have figured it out. Jeff Bezos is so wealthy. Maybe the Washington Post doesn't need to figure it out in the near term. And there's everyone else. And that's got to be a terrifying prospect. Look, here in Central Virginia, the Richmond Times-Dispatch was owned by Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. And he almost kind of threw in the towel on this a year, a year and a half ago. He didn't want to stomach the losses. This is one of the five wealthiest people on the planet. Uh, this is truly kind of a 20-year existential riddle. Right. And I think a couple of things. Newspapers, companies have made some terrible mistakes, terrible mistakes, and thought that the fat profits of the 70s and 80s would continue forever. Uh, technology has changed the game in terms of not only reading patterns, but advertising patterns because people can get better uh, targeted advertising in other places, more useful content in other places. Uh, but it seems to me that you're both going to have owners that step up and value the uh the worth of the properties that they have in in significant news organizations for local communities and cities and regions. And you're also going to have to have stakeholders in the community valuing it. You're going to have people willing to pay for subscriptions to it. You're going to have people uh, not seeking to knock the pillars out from them by, uh, you know, creating laws, making it more difficult for them to do business uh, and forcing them to hire more lawyers. I mean, they are going to have to have the resources to be able to do what they do. uh, And, there are going to have to be owners who are responsible stewards and you're going to have to, you know, ultimately corporations and governments should want these guys there, even though it's painful in episodically in real time. As the mayor of Denver said to me, and he had some of his personal foibles and his young son's personal foibles covered by the Denver Post, but he wants the paper there because otherwise he doesn't know about wrongdoing in his own government, uh, by corporate actors, uh, what's actually happening in the community, what developments are happening. I cannot thank you enough, David Folkenflik. David Folkenflik, media correspondent for NPR News. He hosts the show On Point. Sir, it's always a joy to have you on. Hey, my pleasure. You bet. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this show on NPR.org and the wonderful NPR One app. I don't drive without it. And of course, on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Rave about us and subscribe. We are uniquely eyeballed, over-the-top MP3s for your headphones, car stereos, and Bluetooth speakers. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Next week.